This is the MDRT Podcast. With so many things to think about when buying a practice, advisors should always explore ways to simplify and clarify. During a recent Zoom conversation, David Grau Jr., president of Succession Resource Group, headquartered in rainy Portland, Oregon. I'm Kyle Atkins from Spartanburg, South Carolina, a 40-year member of the business, a 25-year MDRT member and owner of the Kyle Atkins Financial Group here in Spartanburg. Explain what you can do to turn a challenge into an informed and easy path to acquisition success. The big part of the role that a firm like ours plays is let us take the heavy lifting off of you on the deal structuring and the cash flow projections and the contracts, all the boring stuff, frankly, more importantly, so that buyer and seller can be focusing on creating their post-transition roadmap. What are we going to do? When are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? And who's going to say it? And if we can get there, what are we going to say? Like map that stuff out because it's more and more common today. I don't want to head down the tangent too far, but it's more common today than ever to have probably a third of the deals we see out there where the seller stays involved on a part-time reduced basis for at least two or three years. Well, now we really got to make sure we choreograph who's doing what and when they're doing it and how they're saying it, because we got two cooks in the kitchen and they're two entrepreneurs who are both always right. That can be a challenge when we're both right. And especially if you bring on any of the seller staff, he or she is still around, who are they going to go ask questions of? Well, you, because you bought the business and know the bank, you know, $2 million dollars, that doesn't factor in. They still go back to the seller. So it's about creating the roadmap. But to get to your specific question, it is about then on that roadmap, yes, if we're going to call the top 10 clients last, we still need to make sure we position this to everybody quickly and efficiently. So it oftentimes we'll begin with a letter, a joint letter from the buyer and the seller. I promise you the word buyer and seller shows up nowhere in any of this communication. It is an advisor, me as the owner, founder, and my incoming partner. When it's positioned correctly, this is the person I'm partnering with. I'm not going to disappear tomorrow, but you know, an exit of retirement is on the horizon for me. And I'm a professional planner. I want to make sure you and your family are taken care of. So I've chosen to partner with Kyle. You're going to start seeing him more. I'll have more communication and details for you, but I hope you're excited that as our firms come together, we're going to have more intellectual capital. We're going to be getting younger and bigger. You make it into something that's exciting. And so then they're just basically eagerly awaiting your phone call. And when you have one of the top clients talk to one of the smaller clients and say, oh, by the way, did you hear? Oh yeah, I got that letter too. I haven't you know, heard any details yet. Well, now oh, you've done a little bit, I don't say damage control, but you've at least planted the seed. Like more information's coming, you will hear it. Kyle, your thoughts? I mean, you're sitting in front of these clients. Yeah, I think the pressure that, that we have as the, as the purchaser and or the seller is the day that they resign from the current broker dealer, the current position, commissions and everything completely stop. So as the buyer, my goal was to get most of the big people converted as quickly as we can. So I and I, I'm glad David's teaching me a few things here because I'm, it makes sense to be smarter or more uh, deliberate as to who you bring over. However, the pressure still is to get before there's <laughs> another payday. We want to get as many people in as we can because the payments are starting for us immediately. So what we try to do, or what we're attempting to do with this, with one of the um, mergers we're working on now is my team, as we are rehearsing our sales process, the strengths, the things that we're going to say as the buyers. And then we will do the same thing with the sellers, with the team we're merging with, 
we're hopefully all on the same page. So we're I, and I've got two advisors in my office. We will start from the bottom up and from the top down, maybe after we refine and we're sure as to what we want to say. Uh, then we're this, so we're not leaving any group of them alone. Everybody's getting initial, I guess the initial notification. And then we're just having the introductions and the handshakes. So I love the idea of starting with the bottom, but knowing we've got to get to those top people sooner instead of later. But at the same time, I think, and that's one of the things, David, maybe you can help me with this, but when you're buying a firm and they're a big firm and their people have been around 25 years, I think you're naturally going to have some attrition. There's going to be some people leave, especially if the owner leaves unexpectedly. Now, if they're handing off and we're making this partnership, I think our odds are a whole lot better. But then those people are still kind of sizing us up to see if we're going to be like the advisor they've had for years. So I think it's that whole cultural, we're the same, meeting the same, talking the same language is a pretty big deal, which may be adding to what David mentioned of having starting with the lower ones, get some of the initial introductions from the seller, see what they're saying and see how both of us can tweak it before we call the top 10 or top 20%. Yeah, no, 100%. And you brought up a good point on things like the timing of the payments or timing of the first payment, really. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's when things kick off and you need to make sure that we have you know revenue coming in the door before we start sending it back out. It's not uncommon nowadays as we get into like the cash flow projections and planning work to have a you know decent upfront check. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times those will come from you know one of the numerous industry lenders that are now available. So they can stretch the payments out for the down payment over a decade for you, which is great. But let's say we you know work to get a deal done by December 31st. Mm-hmm. To your point, then the bank is going to want their payment, the first payment, starting January 30th. Mm-hmm. And that does not leave you a lot of lead time, let alone spending the time, to your point, Kyle, and even re-asking the question, to be bringing in a whole bunch of C&D clients that may not cover that first payment. Mm-hmm. So it is very common from a cash flow management projection perspective, if it is bank-financed, the banks nowadays will oftentimes selfishly probably, but also altruistically for the buyer, they will build in working capital into that loan. Even though you'll have buyers come back, they'll say, I don't know why they did this because they'll be asking us about the commitment letter from the bank. Like, oh, they you know baked in another $100,000 of working capital. Like, I don't need that. I don't pay interest on it. And the answer is exactly what you pointed out, Kyle. Well, you think you don't, mm-hmm. but you might. And if you don't, then just give it back and pay it off early and it will re-amortize and you'll pay less interest. But if you do need it, It'll be nice to have that little bit of breathing room, which is why they give it to you. Because the last thing a bank wants is for you to show up with hat in hand saying, I can't make the payment. Because while they do love this industry, they also know there's not a lot of tangible collateral. Like if Kyle doesn't pay them, they're not going to go take his practice. They don't want to be an advisor. And he doesn't have any dental equipment or you know medical equipment we can go auction off to get paid. So they will give you safeguards and precautions like that. So the timing of the payments is a great point. And you also mentioned you use the example of an external firm where you've got you know a broker-dealer change, for example, custodial changes. That is an interesting fork in the road for the conversation because you know, it doesn't even matter for the sake of this conversation, Kyle, but you mentioned you were affiliated with a broker-dealer. If you mm-hmm. can do an intra-broker-dealer purchase, like somebody else on the network, I don't want to call it the easy button because it's you know, still complicated. 
but easier than trying to acquire that outside practice. You will have more attrition on the outside practice. You will have to better manage that transition timeline because you're right. Until you get those clients moved over, you might own it on paper, but you're not going to have any revenue coming in. (laughs) Not getting paid. That's right. Right. So I think that's really, really important to also bifurcate. And if you are a first time buyer, you've never done it before, or you've you know, done one or two, like you might try to keep your acquisitions internal for a little mm-hmm. while. And I mean, they're hard enough mm-hmm. when you throw moving the clients and assets from another firm over, mm-hmm. it's doable. It happens all the time, but it's a lot more work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more risk in it. Like even if it's just kind of intrinsic risk, there's risk. That's right. And that's the thing, you know, so our first one was a an internal and that was the handshake and it was relatively easy. The one we've been working on for about three years, it's internal as well. So again, having the buy sale set up, we want to do a lot of work ahead of time, but as practical and as smart as that sounds, it's still hard to get everybody together. So we're still working on trying to get it cranked up. And then we've got this one we're working on now, this from the outside, and just the sweat, equity, headaches, et cetera, of coming from one BD, an external to our BD, has got a lot of people terrified, even though our team's going to handle it if everything works out. But I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with David. Internal's great. It's by far the easiest, which lends to the question, and I'll ask David this. This is a question for me. If the acquisition and the target is big enough, at what point do I say, well, I'll leave my BD to go to them because that's big enough to make this thing happen. That's something we're kind of knocking around. Not interested in doing it. I don't like the idea of having to learn their system in the midst of making a purchase. Nevertheless, when do you say, hey, we'll consider making the move because it's a once in a, maybe a, not only once in a lifetime, but once this close, this easy, this culturally fit, we ought to consider it. So, that's some of the struggles we've been faced with now. Yes, it's a good question, Kyle. I would say generally most of the buyers are one and a half to two X the size of the practice that they're acquiring. Right. Like for the bank financing, those ratios work out better for the seller, communicating to their clients. It just works better. It looks better. The larger firm as a buyer tends to have more capacity. As soon as you get closer to like a one-to-one, Like if you're doing two or three million in revenue and you have an opportunity to basically double in size in like 90 days, Mm -hmm. that's where if the seller really loves his or her broker dealer that they're affiliated with, Mm -hmm. then that would be an instance where you might move. When you're 2X their size and they say, well, Kyle, I really don't want to disrupt my practice. Well, you're going to disrupt it anyway. You're retiring. So if you already aren't committed to your firm and I am committed to mine, plus mine will provide additional move over money. If you can get the assets to come over here, then you just tend to stay put. But yeah, when the sellers, your size, or maybe even a little bit bigger, then it can make sense to pull up stakes, but it's got to be worth the headache because you know, it's going to be a headache. (laughs) And I'll say this, you know, which is interesting when you begin looking at it is the AUM for the firm we're looking at is probably one and a half times our size, but the revenue is maybe a touch less than our firm. So we know that there's a lot of opportunity. We know that there's potentially a lot of assets that need to put on advisory. So the opportunity with the firm we're looking at acquiring is huge because they ought to be doing double the revenue we're doing, but they're not. So why aren't they? 
doesn't make any difference. I mean, from a standpoint, we'll figure those details out a little bit closer. But this is a great opportunity for us. So do we let it go? And if we drive a stake in the ground with our BD, or do we say, hey, this is going to be a home run for everybody involved? And I appreciate it. We're still struggling with the idea of, of leaving and having to learn their system. We think it'd be a much better transition if they come to us. But we'll see how it works out. Sometimes the financials too can help tip, you know, in one firm's favor or the other. They are affiliated with a small firm that just, I mean, has amazing service, but as a smaller firm, won't provide much in the way of transition assistance dollars. Mm -hmm. But yours will. Again, this becomes a easier problem to solve when you can tell the seller, well, I get it. And we certainly don't want to disrupt your clients any more than we have to, but you are retiring soon anyway. And our firm will kick in 50 basis points on the assets that move over, for example, which is going to let us pay you more. Mm -hmm. We think that makes sense. A lot of times you can get the seller to say the same thing, or it could sure. go the other way where the seller's firm is saying, no, no, man, we'd like to keep the assets here, obviously. And we'd really love to have Kyle and his whole team's assets. So we'll kick a little extra into the deal because now it's an acquisition for them as a firm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the financials can help. I mean, but I've seen folks then make that move, land at the new firm, double in size, but still hate life day to day because they don't like the firm that they're at. They don't know it at first. Then when they do get to know it, they don't like it. So these are, you know, changing firms is like a five and 10 year long decision. It's kind of an economic marriage of sorts. So I think the economics can help, but it wouldn't necessarily be how I would decide. <laughs> That's the end of this month's episode. If you'd like to subscribe, you can find us on SoundCloud and Spotify at MDRT Podcast. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.